Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. All right, then. Um, so welcome, everybody, uh, to today's Empire Lecture Series. Um, quick reminder that we have a website coming soon, so keep checking the New York section of the AUA Twitter account. Uh, for details on that. That's going to have recordings of all of these lectures. Um, and otherwise, today we're very lucky to have Dr. Jerry Blavis. He's a professor of urology at the ICANN School of Medicine. Uh, he's one of the um, uh, founders of Eurodynamics and uh, specializes in uh, avoiding dysfunction. And today he's going to be talking about urethral obstruction in women. So thanks for being here, Dr. Blavis, and uh, take it away. Well, thanks for having me. And I, at least I want to call out you guys for starting this. I think it's just a wonderful endeavor. And I would re be remiss uh, in, in starting if I didn't uh, call out everyone for the extraordinary effort where everyone is making uh, in, in this uh, terrible pandemic. Uh, I have to tell you, I've never been prouder in my life to be a doctor to be a member of the uh, of the healthcare community, to be a New Yorker and American and an American, because I think this effort that we've uh, that we've all made has just simply been extraordinary. Uh, so, with uh, that little introduction, uh, let me get started. Uh, first, my disclosures: uh, I'm the um, co-founder and chief scientific author, uh, officer of Intelligence Medical Informatics. Uh, and I will be showing one or two slides uh, that, that, that uh, highlights um, this particular uh, effort that, that we've made. Uh, it's a mobile app, and I won't say anything more about it uh, other than that. So the objective, objectives of this, um, this talk is to understand the differential diagnosis of lower urinary tract symptoms in women, to understand how to diagnose this urethral obstruction, to understand its causes and to understand how to treat it. I, I hope you all know by now that we consider lower urinary tract symptoms in two broad, broad groups, storage symptoms and emptying or voiding symptoms. Something, some people call them obstructive symptoms. Storage symptoms, urinary frequency, urgency, incontinence, and nocturia. Uh, uh, voiding symptoms, weak stream, hesitancy, incomplete, uh, emptying or feeling of incomplete emptying, uh, inability to urinate at all, uh, post-void dribbling, and uh, sometimes pain. Uh, I have to emphasize at the beginning, though, that uh, uh, we knew for decades and decades that the bladder is an unreliable witness. Uh, the bladder symptoms don't tell you what the underlying cause is, with the possible ex exception of stress urinary incontinence because the bladder has a limited means of expressing its own pathology. It can only do so um, with the symptoms that we uh, just listed above. No matter what the symptoms are though, there's a very limited number of underlying conditions that cause uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. First is detrusor overactivity, an involuntary contraction of the bladder. 
second is second uh, sensory urgency and by that um, i mean the feeling that you need to urinate when there doesn't appear to be any underlying cause urethral obstruction impaired detrusor contractility or weak bladder uh, they call it now uh, detrusor underactivity not particularly fond of that word but uh, uh that's the uh, that, that's what the current nomenclature is low bladder compliance sphincter dysfunction and finally polyuria um, those those are the only conditions that cause lower urinary tract symptoms uh, now we're going to focus on urethral obstruction so the incidence varies from as little as two to uh, almost a third of women with persistent lower urinary tract symptoms there is nothing characteristic about the symptoms of uh, urethral obstruction. Overall, patients with uh, women with, urethra, uh, with urethral obstruction, uh, two-thirds of the time have both storage and voiding symptoms. Uh, storage alone is uh, seen in about a little under a third, and strictly voiding symptoms, which is what you would think would, uh, would be most common in patients with, uh, uh, with urethral obstruction, is only seen in less than 10%. How do we diagnose urethral obstruction? Well, of course, you always start with history and we throw in a questionnaire, uh, which I think is very useful. We do, by the way, we do all this remotely and we have the history in the questionnaire and the bladder diary before we even see the patient. Uh, and I think that's gonna be the future of healthcare. But no matter the history, the symptoms are a little help, as, as I just suggested. You should suspect urethral obstruction in women with, who have a low urinary flow rate in those with grade three or four uh, pelvic organ prolapse and in those whose symptoms onset occurs after surgery, usually incontinence surgery or prolapse surgery. Uh, on physical exam, we're looking for prolapse, periurethral masses that could uh, suggest uh, a urethral diverticulum or even a tumor, and of course, a neurologic exam, which for a urolo urologist is really a simple evaluating their physical, uh, how they walk and talk when they first come into the office, the specific exam, anal sphincter tone and control, perianal sensation, and the bulbo cavernosis reflex. Um, after that, we, uh, we, we recommend a, a bladder diary, a uroflow and postmortem residual are essential to the diagnosis of urethral obstruction, but urethral obstruction in women ultimately can only be, de be determined with urodynamics. And I put video urodynamics here because um, it's important to, to not only diagnose obstruction, but to understand the site of obstruction. Uh, urodynamics will let you know if the patient is obstructed or if they have an impaired detrusor contractility, but it doesn't tell you the site of obstruction. Only the video component and cystoscopy uh, can tell you the site of obstruction. I mean, to make this clear, we diagnose obstruction, we suspect um, obstruction in women by history and exam. We diagnose it with reasonable certainty by urodynamics. But the site of obstruction, and it becomes very important in women, can only be determined with the video portion 
of the urodynamics and with uh, and or by cystoscopy. So here's a, a normal uroflow. Uh, here's what an obstructed uroflow looks like. And you'd expect that that would be the end of the, the story. But the problem is patients with impaired detrusor contractility, detrusor underactivity, have a very similar flow pattern to those with uh, uh, to those with obstruction, and in fact, you can't make the distinction between uh, between obstruction and impaired detrusor contractility based on the flow alone. Only urodynamics will make that distinction. Uh, and I'm going to skip the acquired voiding dysfunction pattern. So urethral obstruction is defined by a high detrusor pressure and a low flow. High pressure and low flow means uh, that, just, that the patient is obstructed. Uh, there's some, as you might imagine, the expert urologists quibble about the exact cutoffs uh, for high pressure and low flow, but nevertheless, the concept is sound. High pressure and low flow means urethral obstruction. Here's an example of, uh, of high pressure. Uh, if for those, uh, so the blue line is the uroflow, uh, excuse me, the blue line is the vesicle pressure. This is obviously a urodynamic study. The uh, red line is the detrusor pressure. And here you can see a very high detrusor pressure. This is over 150 centimeters of water. And the flow is barely detectable. So the high pressure and the low flow means obstruction. But a weak bladder impaired detrusor contractility is defined by uh, a weak or a poorly sustained detrusor contraction and a low flow. So here's an example of that. The, uh, the, the detrusor pressure is very low. It's about a 12 centimeters, about uh, eight or nine centimeters of water. And the flow uh, is, is similarly low, about uh, also about eight or nine centimeters of water. So the diagnosis, so that, that's how we conceptually diagnose urethral obstruction in women. Um, there are two different ways of looking at it. Vic, uh, Victor Nitti um, defined, defined back, this is back in 1999, uh, he defined uh, urethral obstruction in women as radiographic evidence of obstruction in the presence of a sustained detrusor contraction. Uh, he'd use no specific criteria and in using those using that way of defining it, he found the urethral obstruction in about 23% of the women that he studied. Um, so now it's what nearly 30 years later, and I think this uh, I think this uh, observation is still correct. Uh, this is actually the way I diagnose obstruction. I look at the pressure flow curve and the video portion, and I decide whether or not I think it's obstructed. Um, so here's a, a clear-cut example of that. The high pressure and the low flow shows you that there's an obstruction. You can just look at this. You don't even need to know what the numbers are. You can see that the, the red line, the detrusor pressure, goes uh, more than halfway up the curve. And the, uh, and the top line, also in red, the low flow, barely gets off the baseline. So high pressure and low flow means obstruction. And here's the radiographic appearance of that. This, uh, this is a lady with a, uh, with a stricture, with a very bad stricture, but you can see, um, and I, I 
hope I take it you can see my pointer here. Uh, but this is the bladder base, and this is a blown out proximal urethra with a very uh, a very tight stricture here. So the high pressure and the low flow showed us that confirmed the diagnosis of urethral obstruction, and the radiographic image uh, confirms the site of obstruction. Uh, now, so that that the high pressure and the low flow without any numbers put to it we could diagnose obstruction. Back in um, the year 2000, myself and uh, a, a urogynecologist named Asnan Grutz, who's, a, uh, who's now a, a, an associate professor in, in, uh, in Israel, uh, came up with this idea of making a nomogram. And it's been called the Blavis-Grutz nomogram, but in fact, the work was almost entirely Asnot. She's a brilliant, uh, br brilliant academic and clinical urogynecologist. And this nomogram simply uh, is based on uh, detrusive pressure, which you see over here, and the free or the unintubated flow rate. And all of the other nomograms, and there's four or five other ones, rely on pressure flow studies. And I'll, I'll show you in a minute why I think it's better to use the the choose the pressure and the free flow. Anyway, this nomogram, you simply plot a number here. So for example, uh, if the flow is five and the pressure is 100, the patient has moderate, well, that should be moderately severe obstruction, but even mild, you can see mild obstruction with a higher pressure, a pressure of 20 and, uh, excuse me, with a flow of 20 and a pressure of 40, for example. Um, so, and, and that brings me to the next point. There's a, there, there's a condition that we call high flow urethral obstruction. It's not very well appreciated. Uh, it, not many people even use the word, but it's basically, a, it's the video urodynamic diagnosis of, of bladder outlet obstruction. So you see a high pressure and a low uroflow. But then when you get the free flow, or sometimes even in during the, sometimes even during the, uh, the video urodynamic study, uh, the patient has a normal flow rate. And we did a retrospective study of, uh, of a couple of hundred patients uh, just with urodynamics who were, di who were diagnosed with, um, uh, with, with, uh, with urethral obstruction and found that 12% of them had a normal flow. And the reason that's important is if you, my original statement was you should suspect urethral obstruction in women um, if there's a high pre, if there's a low uroflow rate, but in fact, 12% of the patients in, in our series who had urethral obstruction had a normal flow rate. And I'll show you an example of that a little bit later. But we to do that, we modified this. Uh, I modified the Blavis Groot's nomogram. Remember, it was published in. The year 2000, I I, um, I modified it about 15 minutes ago and put in this yellow section. And the yellow section of the of the patients with high pressure and low flow. And I'll show you an example, a clinical example of that, uh, in a little bit. So, what are the causes of urethral obstruction? We told you how to define it with high pressure and low flow uh, defines the obstruction. The uh, cystoscopy and/or uh, video portion of the urodynamics tells you where the obstruction is, but now what, what are the causes? Well, the most common cause is prior surgery. 
uh, and the prior surgery can be prior sling surgery, prior prolapse surgery, um, uh, any surgery and or uh, uh, near the urethra. Um, the second most common cause is either dysfunctional voiding, which we'll get to at the very end, which simply means that the patient uh, starts and stops. They start to urinate and then they contract their sphincter because of pain or something else that causes the detrusor pressure to go up. So that's the high pressure, but at the same time, it, it causes the flow to go down. So the high pressure and low flow is technically urethral obstruction, but it's really just a functional, uh, a, a functional problem. Prolapse, uh, I think, really is probably the most common cause of urethral obstruction uh, in, in, uh, worldwide, and that's, that's grade three to four prolapse, not the usual garden variety prolapse. Less commonly, we see urethral strictures, uh, primary, uh, primary bladder neck obstruction, and detrusor um, sphincter dysenergia, which is also a, a clearly urethral diverticulum, which is not on this slide, is another cause. Now, I think of urethral obstruction as being of two kinds, anatomic and functional. Anatomic urethral obstruction, we further divide into, uh, into compressive obstructions, uh, urethral strictures, and uh, atrophy, which, which is kind of like a urethral stricture. Um, compression can, be, can occur after surgery, after, uh, with, with prolapse. It can be caused by a urethral diverticulum or a tumor. Uh, uh, urethral strictures are almost entirely post-surgical or post-traumatic, um, uh, but they can be idiopathic. And then there's finally, um, excuse me, and there's finally the uh, atrophies. Uh, so how do we treat um, anatomic urethral obstruction? Well, surgery, but it depends on the cause. Uh, if it's prolapse, we correct the prolapse. If it's a if it's due to a sling, it's cutting or um, cutting the sling or excising it or urethral lysis. If it's urethral diverticulectomy, repair the, uh, the, the diverticulum. Uh, if it's a stricture, urethroplasty. And if, uh, if you don't want to do any of these things, intermittent catheterization. So uh, now the functional causes of urethral obstruction include, include and they're, they're uncommon aside from the acquired behavioral things are uh, either primary vesicle neck obstruction or um, neurogenic causes like detrusor sphincter dysenergia or this acquired behavior, which I uh, explained just a moment ago. Uh, functional urethral obstruction, um, the treatment, uh, if it's primary vesicle neck obstruction, um, it's either transurethral incision or transurethral resection of the bladder neck. So primary vesicle neck obstruction is uncommon, uh, but we I've seen probably in the course of my career, which is probably longer than some of you have been alive almost, um, that, that I've only seen maybe 30 or 40 cases. Um, Victor Nitti was a great pro proponent of alpha adrenergic ag antagonist. I've used it in every one of them, and it was virtually no benefit. We may be seeing different... Uh, Different kinds of patients. Neurogenic, uh, there, you know, neurogenic causes of urethral obstruction are, are essentially detrusive sphincter dysenergia, and and there's no there's no treatment that in women 
that's effective that doesn't also cause surgical treatment that doesn't also cause incontinence. So for practical purposes, the treatment of neurogenic uh, detrusion sphincter dysenergia is intermittent catheterization plus or minus anticholinergics or Botox, um, and if those things fail, and enter cystoplasty. Uh, now, anatomic urethral obstruction, you know, give me just a second here. No, I, I won't bother. I, I didn't mean to, um, uh, I didn't mean to put all of these on these animations. It takes a little too much time, but I'll give you an example of a post-surgical uh, anatomic urethral obstruction. So here's a patient uh, with a very, very high pressure. It's a, uh, it looks like it's about 90 centimeters of water and a low flow that's barely detectable. And um, this is a, this, I, I copied over this, I blackened out the x-ray because it was a poor quality. And this is a woman that had obstruction from an autologous sling going back. This is in the, this is probably in the 1990s. Uh, this was an autologous sling. It obstructed both her, um, both her bladder and her, her left ureter and she, underwent a, uh, oh, the treatment for that was sling um, incision. The autologous slings, you can just incise. And even 20 years later, if you cut an autologous, it's interesting, if you, take, if you have an autologous sling that's caused an obstruction and you cut it, uh, and I've done probably a hundred of them over the years, uh, thankfully none of my own, but when you cut it, the tissue, literally springs apart. There's, I don't know why, but there's virtually no scar tissue when you do autologous sling. And that's, that's what we did in this, in this woman. Uh, it's quite different with, uh, with synthetic slings. So how do we treat um, post-operative obstruction? And I'll we'll talk about the short-term and the long-term. In the short-term, um, either uh, you can, for synthetic slings, People uh, usually do immediate treatment. I don't do synthetic slings, so I don't have any personal experience. And I'm, I don't like talking about things that I don't have uh, a personal experience with. So I'll just give you a quick view of what, what I think is out there. But in the immediate post-op period, you know, a week, uh, days or week, weeks after uh, synthetic sling, which is what's most commonly done now, it, it, uh, some people, uh, they're treated immediately surgically. Some um, uh, do prolonged intermittent catheterization. And in my judgment, that depends on the procedure that's being done. So, um, uh, so for example, uh, I think it's best to temporize with intermittent catheterization until you have a clear understanding of what's going on, and then definitive treatment. And the definitive treatment is surgery. In mesh slings, I think pretty much everybody agrees um, that the the treatment should be the surgical treatment should be done within weeks before there's uh, time for tissue ingrowth. For autologous slings and birch uh, uh, birch sling, uh, birch urethropexies, uh, I, I, and I have a lot of experience with uh, that. Uh, I think it's really important to wait about two or three months, but because for whatever reason. Um, in, in my experience, a number of the patients get better without the need for further surgery. Uh, one of the possible treatments for, the, uh, for, for slings, uh, for, um, for treating urethral obstruction to slings, well, if it's a synthetic sling, people have tried loosening the sling by 
putting an instrument, pulling down, or uh, or just literally uh, making a small incision, opening the uh, uh, opening the wound, and just putting an instrument and stretching it, or you can incise or excise the sling, or in depending upon the uh, op what operation had been done before, urethrolysis. So mid urethral sling loosening. Uh, is done between usually one and two weeks. It's done with uh, generally local anesthesia. You open the vaginal suture line, hook the sling with a right angle clamp, and then spread the clamp, um, uh, put downward traction, and it's said that the sling will usually loosen within, uh, uh, that will loosen for as much as one to two centimeters. Um, I've never done that, and I'm gonna, so I'll just stop there with that. But uh, I've done a lot of this, and these are uh, sling incisions or excisions. I have come to the opinion long after this article was written uh, that um, that sling excision is far preferable to sling incision. I don't do any incisions, but if you do, here's the technique. Uh, you pull down on the Foley catheter, palpate the sling, make an inverted U incision uh, or a midline incision over the sling, begin the urethral dissection distal to the sling, get into the proper plane, and isolate the sling in the either the midline or laterally, and incise the sling. And um, the sling should spring apart if not dissected from the urethra. In my experience, the um, very often the sling with the synthetic sling, it does not sling apart. So what I usually do is I do this dissection and then I actually cut it back uh, to just alongside the urethra so it's well past the vaginal um, epithelium so that I don't, there's less worry about it, about it eroding afterwards. Um, so here's an example. Uh, we've, uh, we've, we've excised this, we've uh, exposed the sling, simply cut it in the midline and this this particular one did spring back, and so and, and that's okay uh, if it does that. But if it doesn't, I, I would definitely excise it. Um, the results and and the problem with the res any of the results in the literature are of such short term that I don't think you can say anything other than there, there's reasonable short term um, success with these. However, there's a definite incidence of of recurrent stress incontinence afterwards that it's up to uh, it, right now I think it's it's probably 20 to 25 percent so if the sling is obstructed especially a synthetic sling and you do any and you surgically treat it there's about a one in four chance that the patient will have recurrent stress incontinence um, I, I want to just share one patient with you this is a lady that had high flow urethral obstruction so it kind of kills two birds with one stone. So it's a 52-year-old woman. She had partial excision before I saw her of an eroded uh, synthetic mid-urethral sling. On exam, there was tenderness over the arm of the sling. Uh, she had, uh, she, but she had a pretty good flow rate. She avoided 14 milliliters of a hundred, uh, per volume of 14 milliliters per second, a volume of 187 milliliters and no post-void residual. Cystoscopy showed no signs of erosion. Uh, and I'll show you her urodynamic study uh, right here. As you can see, this is a lady with, with high flow obstruction. Her, her flow, and if you look at this curve, it's a 
perfectly normal flow curve, but it was at a pressure of nearly 60 centimeters of water. Um, so that comes out that comes out to be moderate obstruction based on um, uh, the, this nomogram. And so what we did, and, and the um, the video urodynamic portion shows a narrowing, but not much of a narrowing in the distal urethra. For those of you that are used to looking at this, if I showed you this this film, you said that looks pretty normal. Uh, you, if she had a normal flow rate, which she does, you'd say she was normal. But look at the results. Uh, we we excised her sling, and that and you can see we took out uh, uh, about two centimeters of sling. Um, here is I'll come that come that in a sec. Here's her pre and post op flow. So here was her normal flow pre op. Here's her post op flow, and this is two years later. 41 milliliters per second, no residual urine. Now I'm going to go back up and uh, and just show you that uh, this is the um, this is the way we keep track of people with this mobile app. So red are the worst possible symptoms, green or normal. Here she is. Um, uh, here she is pre-op, and she has the worst possible voiding symptoms, maximum bother. She has a lot of storage symptoms a lot of overactive bladder symptoms and a little uh, a little incontinence and she's terribly bothered and here she is uh, post op and this is this is only 3 months post op but we um uh, but but you know she's now that flow is 2 years uh, post op so you can just instantly look at this and see before a lot of symptoms after almost no symptoms so she's better and that I just showed you urethrolysis uh, we uh, reserve, looking at the time here, give it along. We reserve uh, for, <clears throat> for patients that have, um, that have a lot of periurethral scarring. And it can be done either transvaginally or retropubically. Uh, the indications for transvaginal urethrolysis are ex extensive periurethral scarring, um, usually after prior sling surgery, or uh, after prior urethral diverticulectomy. Uh, and and um, also, we used to, uh, sometimes we, we saw it with, um, with birch procedures, which are rarely done anymore. So that's, again, we can do this um, uh, transvaginally two ways. This is, this is, um, this is um, through the anterior vaginal wall. You make an inverted U incision, dissect superficial to the pubocervical fascia, and then uh, perforate the endopelvic fascia with your finger. So here's the balloon. Um, here's the balloon of the Foley catheter. Make a slightly inverted U incision, dissect superficial to the endopelvic fascia, and then perforate the elbow endopelvic fascia. Just if, if those of you remember how to, how to do a, a autologous sling, perforate the endopelvic fascia put your finger in and sweep your finger side to side as, as we're doing here. And, uh, and that frees up the urethra on either side. And then what I do, you can do is pull down on the catheter and make sure you have some mobility. Uh, if that doesn't work, you can then dissect behind the urethra and completely isolate it. Uh, but in my experience, that's almost never necessary. The other approach, which I reserve from uh, uh, birch procedures and Marshall Marchetti's, and God knows when the last time we saw that, but we still do see birch procedures. This is the same incision 
that we make uh, when we do um, uh, when we do the erythroplasties, make a uh, again an inverted U incision between the clitoris and the urethra, uh, dissect directly on top of the urethra, do sharp and blunt dissection, dissecting the urethra off of the pubis to which it's usually stuck. That's where it's so you put your finger through this approach into the um, into the retropubic space. And if it's a birch, you can then at that point, you can't, this is a nice artist's um, picture, but you can't ever see the sutures. At least I can't. You, uh, you have to you feel them with your finger and, you can, and then you cut over your finger on, on the sutures if it's a birch procedure. And you make sure that it's, um, uh, you make sure you, uh, that restores uh, the mobility. Depending on how, how many operations ladies had, you might want to put a Marcius flap uh, into the retropubic space. I've even on a couple of occasions and people that have had multiple um, prior surgeries found momentum, which are actually able to put a piece of momentum down over here, all through this little tiny uh, incision. Um, and so, so we the indications for doing this, uh, uh, I just, or did I just go, I just told you about, um, okay. And the results are actually reasonably good. And again, but again, I caution you, even though all of these studies were done in the, in the, uh, in the, in the decade between the, between probably 2000 and probably between 1995 and uh, 2005, they're old studies, but they all had very, very short follow-up. So we just don't know the reason, the long-term results of any of the stuff. Um, prolapse is another cause uh, of obstruction. And for some of these things, I'm just going to show you example. So, so here's a lady with high pressure, okay, and low flow. So she's obstructed. And, uh, and over here, you can see this, this white line is the pubic sy symphysis. You can see her bladder falls all the way down, way outside of the vagina. She has a grade uh, four prolapse. The high pressure and the low flow are the, the diagnosed obstruction. The video portion, or, or just exam, in this in this case, um, shows you that the obstruction itself is from the prolapse, and um, uh, and the treatment is is either a pessary or uh, or, or prolapse surgery. This lady had a, decided to use a pessary, and, and she was fine. And here's just a blow up of that same thing. Um, urethral diverticulum. Here's uh, an obvious urethral diverticulum. This is a very old slide. So this lady had a bilobar urethral diverticulum, very high pressure and very low flow. Unfortunately, um, this diverticulum was uh, was filled with cancer. She had a, um, a squamous cell cancer of the urethra and ended up undergoing a, uh, a, a radical cystourethrectomy. And she actually survived. She's, one, she's the only, I, I've seen about seven or eight urethral cancers. In, in women, cancers in urethral diverticulum, and she's the only survivor. It's a lethal disease, and she let she died she died 12 years later of a um, uh, of a cardiac uh, condition. Um, finally, tumor. Uh, this was a lady <clears throat> with a recurrent squamous cell tumor. We <clears throat> believe it or not, we it was all superficial, <clears throat> and uh, and we excised excised the tumor. She was treated with chemotherapy and did well uh, for a while, but then uh, sadly had a uh, pulmonary embolus and died. Um, uh, now, what about urethral strictures? And I'm, I, again, I'm just taking one example to show you. 
Same thing, high pressure, low flow. That means she's obstructed. And here is, um, here's the, uh, the stricture you, where you can see the obstruction. You could only see the stricture um, at cystoscopy. You can tell she, that she's obstructed in the mid urethra. This was a lady that was hit by a bus and fractured, uh, fractured her pelvis. Um, idiopathic causes of urethral stricture. Um, I'm sorry I didn't pull, I should have pulled uh, uh, some pictures of cystoscopies. Uh, but anyway, here's a, uh, to, to show you what the strictures look like, because they're they, many times they look different than the, than the, than the typical uh, uh, circumferential uh, strictures that we see in men. High pressure, very low flow, obstruction in the mid urethra. And the site of obstruction is important because obviously a vesicle neck uh, stricture or bladder neck obstruction you're going to treat very differently than something at the at the urethral meatus, for example. Um, so, how do we treat treat strictures? Uh, they are mostly treated by urethral dilation and urethrotomy. Urethrotomy, and when you do that, they mostly come back, and they come back many times. I, I mean, I had I we presented a video at the um, at the last AUA of a woman that had multiple urethral dilations for 30 years and never went more than about four to five, six months without the urethral dilation. And um, we did a urethroplasty and she's been now three or four years uh, and, and, and doing quite well. So the technique of urethroplasty that um, we use um, is to make that same incision I just showed you, this um, inverted U, um, take a buckle graft and uh, expose the urethra, get into the periurethral, um, uh, get into the retropubic space, and then incise until we, we and checking with Bougievu until we get to a normal urethral caliber and go a little bit further than that. It's, I think it's very important to get past, uh, to get past the stricture, put in a buccal flap, suture it in place, and here it is uh, sutured in place. Um, and I guess I didn't pull the slides to show the results, but she had a very, um, again, she, this particularly uh, three or four years pulse stop is uh, virtually asymptomatic. Finally, just a picture of what atrophy looks like. This was a 85 or 90 year old woman that had never had problems until the last maybe five or 10 years of her life has again, high pressure and low flow. And look at her bladder, I mean, multiple diverticula, and this is this was during voiding. You can't even see the urethra. And this was all, believe it or not, all due to, uh, to atrophy. We treated her with hormone replacement therapy uh, for the rest of her life. And she, I mean, she wasn't great, but she was very much improved and her flow um, improved uh, dramatically. A um, couple of more uh, primary vesicle neck obstruction, high pressure, Low flow means they're obstructed. Here's, um, here's the uh, point of obstruction at the bladder neck, two huge bladder diverticulum. This lady was in her 60s. Um, treatment, alpha adrenergic blockade, according to Victor Nitti and others, does not work according to me. You can, I've done about 20 or 30 bladder neck incisions or resections. I've done both and I just, it just, decide, I just decide at the time uh, what seems to be most appropriate. 
and this is uh, this particular lady, we actually resected two grams of tissue, post-op Euroflow is seen here. This is not a, um, an artist rendition. This is me just tracing over the flow curve because it was it, it just didn't come out well in the, in the picture. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I went backwards. Here's, um, I, I left out her pre-op, uh, I left out her pre-op, uh, no, I did show you her pre-op urodynamics. No, I didn't, okay. Anyway, uh, so here she is post-op, many years uh, post-op with that, with that high flow. Still looks like she has uh, a bit of a stricture, uh, not a bit of a stricture, this would be a really bad stricture, except for the fact that it didn't look like that cystoscopically and, um, and her flow was so normal. And I now, believe it or not, I have over 20 years follow-up on this lady and she is still uh, voiding well uh, without any problems. Uh, here's her most recent flow. I think that looks look very much like the one I traced over. Uh, finally, neurogenic causes, detrusor sphincter dysnergia, high pressure and low flow means that there's an obstruction, okay? The EMG in this case shows that during voiding, there's a lot of EMG activity, okay? And she's obstructed here in her uh, mid to distal urethra due to the sphincter contraction, detrusor sphincter dysnergia. Uh, here's another one. This is a quadriplegic patient, high pressure, no flow, okay? And you can see she's obstructed right at her bladder neck. So she has a she has a, um, a secondary bladder neck obstruction, which is not that uncommon in uh, in men and women with uh, with, uh, with with spinal cord injury. And finally, this acquired behavior. And I'm sure any of you that do your net dynamics have seen this. They have this staccato. Uh, pressure rise. They stop and start and stop and start and give this intermittent, uh, this intermittent flow pattern. And that's a classic acquired behavior. And um, so she has a detrusor contraction, a sphincter contraction, and a low interrupted flow. And she's, she's obstructed at her, at her distal urethra from the, uh, from the sphincter contraction. Finally, um, I hope it's finally, uh, a weak, weak detrusor contractility or detrusor underactivity. Um, I've already defined that for you. I'll just show you what it looks like. So here's a lady whose detrusor contraction is so low, it's obscured by this uh, sphincter contraction. So a low pressure and a low flow, this is about eight centimeters of water. Low pressure, low flow is detrusor underactivity. I said 10, I got it a little bit off. Uh, the etiology, it could be neurogenic or myogenic for any of these causes or idiopathic. Treatment is observation, double voiding, time voiding, but the mainstay, if necessary, is intermittent catheterization. In my experience, medications simply do not work, but there are also patients that I believe are obstructed who have impaired contractility that hopefully will be the topic of another talk. So um, I'm going to conclude here, I hope, leaving about 15 minutes for, uh, for, uh, for questions, if there are any. We'll give you a bathroom break, whatever you like. Um, so urethral obstruction women is not uncommon. It's seen anywhere from two to uh, a third of patients with persistent lower urinary tract symptoms. 
um, the symptoms are nonspecific. You cannot diagnose it um, on the basis of symptoms. You can only suspect it if the patient has a low flow, if they have, have type three, grade three or four um, pelvic organ prolapse, if they have, um, or if the onset is after, uh, after pelvic surgery. The diagnosis, although suspected on these things, is based entirely on pressure flow urogenomic studies. The pressure flow studies define whether or not there is obstruction, and the video portion and or cystoscopy define the site of obstruction. And it is essential to, if you're going to treat the patient to understand the site of obstruction, because if, if because the women's the women don't have a prostate and the urethra is so short that if you treat the wrong part, um, you you will you know, you won't help. If you think a, if you think a patient has urethral stricture and they, uh, and they have primary bladder neck obstruction, you can dilate the urethra or cut it or do internal sphincterotomy all you want, but it's not gonna work. If the patient has a stricture and you think it's a primary bladder neck obstruction and you treat them with adrenergic blockers, it's not gonna work, even though I don't think it works any of the time. So, uh, so this, the treatment then of urethral obstruction women, in women is intimately um, dependent upon understanding the underlying causes. And in my experience, treatment of urethral obstruction in women is one of the most gratifying uh, 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 conditions that I treat because the success rate is very, very high. 